You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. We'll be starting in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5. If you do not have a Bible, there should be some Bibles in your pew backs. If you do not own a Bible, you are welcome to take that home as a gift. Please stand with me out of reverence for God's word as we read it. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the word of the Lord. Do you uh, shift over with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16? We'll read verses 1 through 13. Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Israel, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, we come now to hear your word, to be instructed by your word. And so we ask that your spirit would bear up this word and and show us the glory, the goodness of your word. God, that we would hear your words and we would believe your words and we would trust your words. And God, that we would obey your words. Let's come now and bless this word to your people. In your name we pray, amen. You arrive at chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, and there is a a kind of um, temptation to forget that for Samuel, he doesn't have the rest of the book. He is caught up in a particular moment. We read this story, and we get to 16, and we say, finally, we get to David. We get to the good stuff. We're about to get to Goliath. Things are looking up. But for Samuel, at this particular moment, everything is collapsing. And it's important for us to consider again um, where we are in the story and how the drama of this moment um, actually reveals to us something um, quite beautiful and surprising and sometimes, let's just be honest, frustrating about the nature and the character of God. In fact, something frustrating about how God always seems to love to work in the world and in history and in our lives. You remember at the beginning of Samuel, we go all the way back to the prayers of Hannah, longing for a child, um, a child that would mark the coming of the the destruction of Israel's enemies, um, God lifting up his people again out of despair and death and slavery. In other words, um, a prayer that would mark Um, A prayer for a child and the coming of that child would mark the establishment of the kingdom. That that God would begin to reign over Israel again. That the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel would be put down. um, And the lowly would be exalted. The arrival of Samuel was a a direct answer to that prayer. Samuel was um, the the fulfillment, the marker that God had begun to do something new in Israel. to, To bring about a new day, a new victory, um, the overcoming of the Philistines, the overcoming um, of the pagans who were oppressing Israel, and that Israel would finally be established in freedom to worship her God. Um, then we come to the crisis where Israel itself, um, after uh, defeating God defeating her enemies uh, through Samuel's establishment, the reestablishment of worship, and the reappearance of the word in Israel, um, the crisis of them demanding of God a king. Samuel, um, they no longer wanted to serve under Samuel. They no longer wanted to, they didn't want to um, have to deal with Samuel's sons, um, which we find out in the text that they were a mess. Um, and, uh, but in fact, underneath all of it was a desire to be like the other nations, a desire to, to look like the other nations, to be ruled by the other nations, um, and to fight like the other nations. And so they demand of God a king, And God grants their wish through the coming of Saul. And then, surprise, surprise, things go really, really well at first. Well, about a chapter. Um, With the arrival of Saul. Um, The the enemies are pushed back. Saul has this glorious son named Jonathan. um, One of the most underrated characters in all of scripture. The Bible tells us nothing negative about Jonathan. Um, He is a noble son and a noble warrior and faithful to God. But Saul persists in unbelief. He persists 
in um, a kind of presumption of his own authority over against the authority of God. He refuses to obey God. He presumes to bring sacrifices to God when that's not his job. So Saul is rejected by God and the spirit of God departs from Saul, the spirit to rule and to reign as king over Israel. And so what you have to stop for a moment to consider as it begins here with the Lord's question to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, is the situation that Samuel is looking at as he's grieving. There was just a few chapters ago, a few years ago in the narrative, so much promise. Things looked good. The enemies were being pushed back. Worship had been reestablished. The word of God was being spoken and taught and heralded again. There was a kind of restoration happening within Israel. I mean, even with the coming of a king, the demand of a king, there was a kind of still, the blessings of God were coming upon Israel. And yet Saul then commits three sins, a foolish oath, a presumptuous sacrifice, and an act of disobedience against the enemies of God. And it seems like everything is collapsing. Saul and Samuel have had just a a very, very public falling out. Samuel rejecting the authority of Saul. And the Lord saying that I I, I take my spirit from him. So we arrive in chapter 16, verse 1. We arrive at a man who is confronted with the, the state of Israel and what looked like decades of promise and God's blessing that was just going to give way to more blessing and more of God's promises. And we're confronted right away in this text that God loves to tell stories this way. You see, we see David coming. We, we said, Samuel, just hold on. Like, get to the end of the chapter, you'll be great. It's going to be better. But as we live out our lives, as we look at history unfolding, um, as we actually live in the moment that we're in, um, we are confronted by pain, we're confronted by moral chaos, um, we're confronted by oftentimes the chaos of our own lives, um, and, and we see simply what's right in front of us, and we forget that this is exactly the kind of story that God loves to tell. He loves to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat. He he loves to take what appears to be nothing but a crisis and destruction and to right at that precise moment bring about glory. But before we step into the rest of this story, consider what this tells us about the nature and the character of God. That over and over and over again, throughout the whole of the history of Israel, he tells this same story again and again and again, preparing us, um, preparing all of us, if you have eyes to see, for the centerpiece, the climactic revelation of that exact story in the death and the resurrection of Jesus himself. 
It's a precise moment where it looks like evil wins. It's a precise moment where it looks like death has conquered. It's a precise moment where it looks like sin and wickedness and destruction has come to bear and will cover everything. God says no. This is who God is and what he's like. So we come to this text and we hear this moment of grieving. We're going to look in a second and see that it's, it's a moment marked by sadness and fear. Into this moment, God says, fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I, hear that, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. We have here the next contrast between Saul and David. When the people come to Samuel demanding a king, God says, give to the people their king. And so we have Saul, a king provided for the people. We have here David, we don't know his name yet, We have here David, a king provided by God for God. See the language. I have provided for myself a king. But whatever your political theology is, whatever your primary orientation is to how you think about voting or you think about politics, um, here's a a fundamental principle um, that, that should guide it and shape it. The king belongs to God. The king is answerable to God. The king is a, a person under authority. So I don't care if you're a president or a governor or a state legislature um, or a local health clerk, whatever you are, you are a person under authority. And this is good news for us. If you're in this room and you're a you're in politics, you're a civil magistrate. This is actually profoundly good news for you. You are a person who bears authority, but that authority belongs to God. You're under the authority of God. So rather than merely a king being provided for the people, God here says that I'm going to provide for myself a king, go to Bethlehem. The first thing I want us to see from this story is this is how God tells stories. And so perhaps you're here this morning. Maybe you're not a Christian and you are visiting this church because we were within walking distance of your house. That's happened a few times. You're here. You don't really know much about Christianity, but it's February and you were bored today, so you decided to come to church. I don't know what sort of crisis your life is in. I don't know what kind of darkness seems to consume you, whether it's your own addictions, your own sin, or just the circumstances you're in are really, really dark. Here's what I want you to know about God. The God of the Bible. The God of Jesus Christ. He loves to take these moments of darkness and despair and crisis and right in the midst of it to give birth to glory. 
to see darkness give way to light, to give death give way to life, to, 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 give, um, to, to see despair give way to joy. You see, he always accomplishes his purposes. Nothing can thwart him, not even the rebellion of a king. Nothing can stop him. He always does exactly what he wants to do, and he seems to always want to do things that maximize his glory, that, that cause a people to fall on their face in desperation for him to act. So will you trust him? Will you cling to him? Will you cry out to the God who plucks victory out of defeat? Brings joy out of crisis. He brings life from death. Second thing I would ask you to observe in this story, the mood of the day. And this isn't just Samuel's mood, although I think it's notable. Um, Samuel is not just merely kind of a cold, distant, kind of emotionally isolated from what's happening with Saul. Um, we have multiple evidences in 1 Samuel. Samuel loved Saul. Um, he was grieved by Saul's fall. He was grieved by Saul's sin. Um, he's not just dictating kind of coldly the word of God. He loved Saul, he cared deeply about Saul, um, and he was grieved, mourning over Saul's sin, over Saul's fall, over God's rejection of Saul as Israel's king. I think he was grieved personally over Saul. I also think um, that, that we have evidence here of Samuel being grieved over the fact that there was something glorious coming about that seemed to have fallen apart, It seemed to have collapsed. And that grief was accompanied by fear. So the word of God comes to Samuel, tells him to go to Bethlehem because he's chosen for himself a new king. Samuel's response to that word, that command from God is, how can I do this? Saul will kill me. So we have grief, we have mourning, We have fear. You also see the fear, the trembling, and this odd phrase as the elders of Bethlehem see Samuel coming and they go to him trembling. They're afraid. Um, This this happens in families. It happens in societies. It happens in churches. It happens in businesses. There has been a very, very public falling out. Here's the king, the ruler, the magistrate. Here is the prophet the priest, the judge, who speaks the words of the Lord, and they don't like each other very much. The effect of that is sadness, and the effect of that is fear. But we get here a picture of the mood of Israel at this moment. Terror and sadness. So when we talk about how God tells these stories, we're not just talking about the the personal experience of Samuel in the midst of this story. We're talking about an entire nation. We're talking about towns like Bethlehem. We're talking about a darkness that had descended on the people of God who had inherited and had 
all of the promises of God. And in the face of those promises, they'd been lost, or felt like they'd been lost. In the face of the collapse, they were seen. So the second thing I want you to see is, what do you do in moments of despair and fear? Much has been made about the deceptive nature of what Samuel does here. Can't announce to Israel, don't worry, going to pick God's new king. God tells him to bring a heifer and offer a sacrifice. But I actually think there's more to it than that. I think that's there. And we could do a whole little thing on, on when deception is good. Be a good sermon for all the teenagers in the room. <laughs> um, but I don't want to focus on that. I want you to notice that, that what do you do in these moments? What does Samuel do? What does God instruct Samuel to do in a moment when it appears like everything's falling apart? Come and worship me. Hey, do you remember the story of Job? Like, everything bad that could happen to a dude happens to that dude. Family, dead. Riches, gone. Wife, <laughs> telling him to curse God and die. That's like a bad day in your marriage. Um, you need counseling. If your wife ever looks you in the eyes and says, you should curse God and die, you should call me. What does Job do? Literally on his lips, he praises God. He worships God. Here in the midst of what appears to be absolute darkness, the collapse of all that God had just built, spent decades building, right in the midst of it, in, in, in the face of darkness and fear, God says, bring me a heifer, bring offerings into my presence and worship me. So we have a God who tells stories, who loves to pluck light out of darkness and bring life out of death. And we have a call as a people that we would fix our gaze on worshiping the one, um, the one who has made us, uh, the one who has saved us and redeemed us, of worshiping the one who we maybe not, maybe in this moment, don't fully understand what on earth he's up to in our lives. Worship. Third, see something about the nature of how God chooses kings. Um, he is subversive in the way that he chooses and anoints a king. So here's what happens. So he goes, Samuel goes to Jesse. They're going to have time of worship, responding, trusting God and bringing offerings into the presence of God. Um, what's happening altogether, it's important to note, this isn't happening in secret. Um, what happened in Saul, is when, when Saul was named, um, happened in secret. 
uh, what happened, what's happening is here, he actually has official representatives, the elders of the, of the town of Bethlehem, um, there to observe this, to watch this. So this is going to be, um, this is in some ways a public act, um, a, a declaration of who is going to be king. He gets Jesse, says, bring me your sons. Um, one of them is going to be anointed as the next king of Israel. And so he brings the eldest son. This would be the son um, that, at least according to how most people think God would work, is the one deserving of honor, um, the one uh, who, who should rule, and he is a looker. I mean, he is the guy who looks the part as king, much like me. He just looks like he should be king. Like, this is the guy that's going to rule. Um, this is the guy that's going to replace Saul. And the word that comes is harsh. Surely, they said, this is the Lord's anointed before him. Leah is the guy. He is going to be king. God says to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the first brother is rejected. And then that happens six more times. Seven brothers are presented to Samuel. And all seven times the Lord says, no, 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 no. It's interesting that there are seven brothers chosen, um, are not, seven brothers that are not chosen, and it is the eighth brother that is actually going to be chosen. A week of potential kings all cast aside, and a new week begins. Um, one of the reoccurring themes or images around the number seven throughout the scriptures is um, the, the, the transition from an old creation, an old order of the world, to a new order of the world. And so David's seven brothers, his previous brothers, are all rejected because God is doing something new. A new king and a new kingdom. But it would be very very important to us, it should be very important to us, to ask the most obvious question. It says here that the Lord looks on the heart. But what exactly does the Lord look for as he looks on the heart? There's a number of different places you could go in scripture to discover a heart that God seeks or he looks for. Um, the most prominent one that jumped out at me in the, um, reflecting on this text was from Second Chronicles sixteen nine. The Lord goes to and fro, searching for hearts utterly devoted to Him, hearts that belong to Him, hearts that trust Him, hearts that look to Him. But what does God seek? Um, and, and here is um, for, for all of you here, uh, because I think there's been, a, um, there's been a, a slow kind of subversion of our understanding of what faith is, what, what the kind of faith is that saves, and what is the kind of faith that takes hold of and trusts in Jesus. Um, it's not a heart that's perfect. It's not a heart that, 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 that always chooses and desires the right thing. It is a heart that at the bottom trusts to, um, trusts in, and clings to God above everything else. 
we're going to find very, very quickly that David sins. That David commits a sin arguably as, as gross and as negligent as Saul's, if not worse. But when confronted with his sin, he clings to God. He asks for mercy. He pleads with God. That God would forgive him and not depart from him. In other words, here is a man who doesn't raise his fists in the face of the words of God, who doesn't raise his fists and try to justify himself in the face of God. Here is a man whose heart is devoted to, belongs to, clings to, finds its very basis for hope and life in God himself. What is faith? But what is the kind of living faith that justifies? It is a heart that looks to God and trusts him. So when God declares over you in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, no matter what guilt you feel, no matter what shame you feel, you trust him. When God says you should pursue this and not this, when he says you should take a Sabbath rest to take our confession of sin today, when he says that sex should, should, should find its way here and not here, when he says that you're a man and you should live this way and you're a woman and you should live this way and they're different, no matter what other voices you're hearing, no matter what inner voices you're hearing, no matter what pulls to redefine justice or to redefine righteousness you hear, um, no matter how confused you feel, you fall back on and cling to and put all of your hope in God. Therefore, you believe his word more than you believe any outer voice, more than you believe some voice in your head, more than you believe the latest trends in social studies or psychology, more than you believe anything else. You trust him and his word. The Lord doesn't look on the outer man, on the stature, on the appearance. He looks on the heart. He has regard for the heart. So trust the Lord. Trust his words more than any other words. Trust them. Cling to them. Believe them. In fact, believe them in such a way that you evaluate everything else in the world in light of his words. Trust his words so much that you evaluate your own emotions and feelings in the light of his words. Please hear that. That we live in a day and age that shouts at you that you are to discover yourself and to discover the nature of the world and to discover how you might live and to discover um, whether or not God has blessed you or not and to discover almost everything about how the world is um, not by listening to God but by trusting in what you feel trusting in what you long for trusting in what you're afraid of trusting in, in your own emotional state your own thoughts your own wisdom your own longings, your own hurt. Trust the Lord. Trust his words. 
cling to his words. You see, if you don't, we live in a world that, that at this moment, more than I, I know of any other time in my life, feels like sheer, absolute chaos. How glorious is it in the midst of the winds of our culture, the chaos of our culture, to have a place to set your feet, to have a fixed point that doesn't move and shift such that rather than being tossed about by every wind of doctrine, every trend, um, every new um, outrage on social media, um, every new chaotic moment or crisis moment that happens in the world, rather than simply being tossed about to and fro, you have a line to cling to. It's fixed. And it's strong enough to build an entire life on. Trust in the Lord. And last, last thing I want you to observe in this text, at least this morning, maybe this afternoon, you'll go back to the text and observe all kinds of other things. The thing I want you to see right now and hear the very end there in verse 13, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You have a number of different things happening in, the, um, in kind of the progression here from 15 to 17. First, the spirit departs from Saul. Um, I, I don't think, um, in fact, well, I'll just put it this way. One, one, of the, um, uh, one of the things that I, I don't think we've done enough work on to understand and, and really uh, to wrestle with is um, the kind of the movement or, or the, the way that the, the, the spirit of the living God functions in Scripture. Um, that there is at least two different ways we see on the Spirit operating in the lives of people. Um, and you see it really, really clearly in the Old Testament. But you also see it in the New Testament as well. Um, and that is, one, you have um, the, the Spirit coming to bring life where there's death. I'm coming into a person and, and, and causing you to trust God, causing you to delight in God and the things of God. Bringing spiritual life um, where you can't produce your own spiritual life. Uh, theologians, we call it regeneration. We call it the new birth. Um, that the spirit of God comes and takes dead people and makes them alive to the things of God. I don't think that's what this text is talking about. Um, you see, a, a, another place that you see, another way that you see the spirit operating, um, and, and most explicitly you see it, you see it really all the time in the Old Testament, um, is that the spirit comes and equips or gifts a person for a particular kind of function or job in the world. Um, and so you see uh, when they're building the tabernacle, um, and it happens again when they're building the temple, the spirit of God descends on some artisans um, and uh, they become really gifted, spiritually gifted artisans. Um, all the time we think of the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit of God merely in um, kind of like in some sort of spiritual realm, um, which makes sense because we're saying the word spirit. And, but, but it kind of is this 
simply a set of emotions or feelings or theology or um, religion or worship or those kinds of things. But, but um, uh, that is to split the world in a way that the Bible never splits the world. Like your life tomorrow as a programmer, your life tomorrow as, as a coffee barista, your life tomorrow um, as a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or a student um, it is not divorced from what God is actually up to in your life and what God is actually invested in. And, and there's a kind of movement of the Spirit that equips His people to do certain things. And we see this movement happening from Saul to David. And then um, a real telltale is in uh, Isaiah, Psalm 51. Um, after David sins, what does he plead with God? Do not remove your spirit from me. I, I don't think he's saying, like, don't take your spirit away from me such that I no longer have spiritual life. I'm no longer saved or redeemed. I think what he's saying is, like, you have given me, and we see it in this text, you've given me the spirit. The spirit of God has rushed upon me to give me um, a kind of authority in my role as king to rule with, with um, beyond just my own kind of natural abilities, but to actually rule in the very power and words of God. Don't let that leave me. Stay with me. Hold me up and continue to strengthen me for that call, for that vocation. You see, the Spirit of God um, in, in the first place is um, the, the only thing that can give us life, can give us spiritual life. And we all, apart from Jesus and apart from the living work of the Spirit, are dead in our sins and trespasses. I'm not kind of like sick or just broken. We're dead, the Bible says. Like, like we have no spiritual life in us. We can't save ourselves. We can't muster up a kind of love for God. We can't kind of grit our teeth and decide that we um, are going to delight in the law of God and delight in the righteousness of God on our own. Um, left to ourselves, we're dead. Like we can't do anything. And, and yet God comes and through the gospel and through the power of the spirit, and through the proclamation of the word, the spirit of God comes and awakens dead hearts um, and makes them alive, takes hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh and gives us life. But I wonder, I wonder if you've ever thought about your job, wherever you're going to go tomorrow, whatever you're going to be up to tomorrow. Dads, I wonder if you've ever thought about your vocation as a father. Students, I wonder if you ever you've, you've gone to class, showed up on campus, walked into the classroom and thought about your need for God and his strength and his empowering to do those what seem like mundane, you might be tempted to think, I can pull this off, I'm pretty smart, um, or I'm, I can pull this off, I'm a pretty good dad, um, whatever the thing is. But rather than approaching those things and saying, this, whatever the Spirit of God is doing in the world has primarily to do with something like my heart, um, it has, doesn't have a whole lot to do with my vocation, doesn't have a lot to do with my responsibilities, doesn't have to, a lot to do with me being a father or a mother or a child or a student or a investor or whatever it is that you do. Um, uh, but, but in fact, what the Bible shows us is absolutely the Spirit gives spiritual life from the death and the Spirit empowers and strengthens and grants authority for a variety of vocations and purposes in the world. And so, do you wake up in the morning and not only give thanks to God for the spiritual life that he's given you in Jesus by his spirit, 
but also ask that the spirit of the living God would come and help you, empower you, grant you authority, grant you insight, grant you gifting in the variety of callings represented in this room. Because we have biblical grounds for both. And I think it's essential that we recognize that dependency and we ask for it. So, we worship a God who loves to tell cliffhanger stories. Think about where we are. The collapse of Saul, the rebellion of Saul, the presumption and arrogance of Saul, which is only going to get worse and worse and worse as we go. It's not that the thing that God used like despite it, but rather precisely through it, he brings us David. And through David, he establishes a line that brings us all the way to the son of David, Jesus. A king who reigns forever and ever and ever. A king who doesn't sin and then need to ask for forgiveness, let alone a king like Saul um, who sins and and doesn't know what to do with it. Um, But but a king who doesn't sin. In fact, a a king who is perfect in righteousness and holiness. Um, And because of that, he dies on the cross bearing the sins of us. And precisely through and by means of um, Saul's collapse and the apparent collapse of all this good that God was reaping and bringing about in Israel, the result of it is the salvation of the world, the redemption of the nations, the establishment of a king on a throne whose reign will have no end, whose reign has no bounds, whose reign establishes forever and ever and ever righteousness and goodness and mercy, namely King Jesus, king who feeds his people and doesn't deny them food in the midst of battle. King who rules with righteousness calls us to worship, to delight in, to be satisfied by the God of the universe. Let's pray and prepare for communion. And so, Father, trusting in you, trusting in your words, and looking to you to keep us, to feed us, to instruct us, to nourish us, to empower us. We come to this table with bread and wine. Father, we bless this bread. May it be for us again, uh, uh, our very union with Jesus and his body, his body that was broken for us. Father, we drink this wine. It may be for uh, for us again, I'm a cause for glad hearts. And as we remember the blood of the covenant by which our sins are forgiven and we are united with Jesus and brought into your throne room forever and ever and ever. And so, Father, we celebrate this meal and we ask that you would bless it. In your name we pray, amen.